Welcome to the Harmony of Interest series, where we explore ideas that positively shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer for Epithy Media Lab that publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture, and we are a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. For this recording, we are focusing on private equity, what it is, and why it is a problem. And we will be diving into private equity's role in the U.S. healthcare system. Joining me from the Private Equity Stakeholder Project is Virginia Rodino, who is the Director of Communications, and Eileen O'Grady, who directs healthcare research. Could we begin by talking about what is private equity or PE? So we have publicly traded companies, which I think we're all pretty familiar with, and they are owned by shareholders, and so you can buy stock in them. There are companies that are owned by private individuals, so they're not publicly traded on the stock market, either individuals or families own it. And then we have the types of companies that are owned by private equity, and these are institutional investors. And so, you know, just to break it down, private means that it's private ownership of companies, and, and real estate and, and other equipment. It's not traded on a stock exchange. And the money to purchase these companies is from institutional investors. So pension funds, foundations, endowments. And then the part of private equity that you know is also concerning for us is how the private equity manager has control over what happens with these investments. And so there's not a lot of say by any sort of other entities in society. And the private equity manager and the investors bear most of the risk of any particular investment. I mean, so that is like the general overview of the difference between a private equity owned company versus any other types that we already know about. So let's talk about what is the Private Equity Stakeholder Project and what are some of the goals for this organization? Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, we, we're definitely trying to kind of demystify what private equity is so people understand, again, how much uh, it impacts us, so how much we just need to be aware of, of how, it's, how it's interfering with, with our daily lives, you know, from cradle to grave, essentially. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. And our, you know, our goals are to support unions, community groups, consumer groups, others working on campaigns that involve private equity or similar financial firms. So a lot of the work we do is based on extremely deep and, and also broad data sets, you know, where we look at a lot of data across various industries and sectors. Our goal is to encourage and support organizing and to create, create a hub for different campaigns. So turning our focus to healthcare and Eileen's specialty, how has private equity impacted healthcare? So private equity's interest in healthcare has been going on for, for a long time. Private equity has invested in, in healthcare for a number of decades, but just for the past 20 years or so, private equity investment in healthcare has outpaced basically any other investment area for private equity besides tech. And so when you think of healthcare companies, that basically means every kind of healthcare company from nursing homes to hospice to home care, behavioral health hospitals, urgent care, dental services, pharmaceuticals, all the way down to healthcare billing and collections. To understand the, the impact of private equity in healthcare, it helps to kind of understand sort of the general model of private equity investment, which basically relies on generating as much possible cash flow over a short period of time. So 
So a private equity firm's singular focus when it buys a company is to generate sort of double or triple their return on their investment in usually three to five years. And if you think about what that means in healthcare, it can be very troubling, especially in areas of the healthcare industry where, you know, those kinds of margins are just not possible without doing kinds of, you know, troubling profit-seeking tactics. And so it, it essentially leads private equity investors to cut, to cut corners, to be able to, to make those investment returns. So in healthcare, it means replacing licensed staff with unlicensed staff or not having enough staff, dedicating fewer resources to, to training or maintaining facilities or equipment. In some cases, we've seen that means participating in illegal behavior like kickbacks or, or billing fraud. And so all of these kinds of profit-seeking tactics have pretty profound impacts on, on patient care. So one of the articles you shared, this stat stood out to me. Healthcare firms have already borrowed about $3.7 billion in 2021 to fund payments to private equity owners, more than double the amount issued all of last year. The private equity firms, they go in, they buy these companies and they load debt on them. And then they take the money out for the kickbacks without reinvesting in the actual product, service, and those type of things. So it's, it's like an asset stripping model of taking out the value of the company once they get a hold of it. E even taking a step back, how do, how do they increase the value if they're taking the value out and loading debt? Let's see. I, th I think you touched on a couple of things there that we can unpack. The first thing you talked about is something called dividend recapitalizations, which we've spent a lot of time looking at. And it's, it, it's what you described, which is basically a transaction where a private equity firm takes out new debt on the balance sheet of the company that it owns. So say a private equity firm owns a hospital, the private equity firm will add new debt to that hospital and then use the, the proceeds from that debt to pay itself a special cash dividend. And like you said, it's, it's basically adding debt and using the hospital in this case, essentially as a platform to raise debt, to, to pay itself money without making, you know, any sort of operating improvements or, or any kind of investment in, in the healthcare company. And beyond even these kinds of transactions, private equity very heavily uses debt. And so they're the, the way that a lot of private equity firms acquire companies in the first place is um, through something called a leveraged buyout, which is basically using a significant portion of debt to finance their acquisition of a company. So say the company is priced at $100 million. In a leveraged buyout, the private equity firm will contribute $20 million of its own money and use $80 million in debt. So now that company suddenly has $80 million in debt. And so the, the tactic of using such high levels of debt can exacerbate basically all of the problems that I talked about earlier in terms of sort of cost-cutting tactics because the company is on the, in, is on the hook for the interest payments. So even if the private equity firm exits that company, even if it sells it you know, to someone else, the company, this hospital, for example, has to find a way to pay that money back. And that means that there's also less cash available to spend on operations that you know could improve patient care 
the whole model is predicated on getting debt for this leverage buyout so you can recapitalize these dividends. And you, you mentioned it at the beginning about the institutional investor side of it. Why would they lend to a private equity firm when in a very short amount of time, the company that's been bought out is going to be worth less because it's going to have less debt. It's going to have less way to actually generate a profit because it seems like the, the lack of investment asset stripping is going to reduce its ability for future potential growth. Yeah, I think you're asking two different things here. I think you're asking about why do institutional investors like pension funds invest in private equity? And I think you're also asking why do lenders provide the financing for something like a dividend recapitalization or for something like a leveraged buyout when it could potentially weaken that company? So I think the first aspect of this is, so why do institutional investors like public pension funds or endowments invest in private equity? I mean, the, I think that's a great question. I, I, the idea is that private equity firms are able to generate very high returns, higher theoretically than the public markets. And it's a very real problem for pension funds that most pension funds are vastly underfunded and they have to find a way to make money for their retirees and for their, their members. And so they're under immense pressure, basically. Private equity firms come to them and they say, we can make you a you know 25% return on your investment. Whether or not that is actually the case is sort of up for debate. But the idea is that private equity makes money for, for these institutions that, you know, desperately need it. And then the question of why are lenders providing financing for leverage buyouts and things like that? I mean, there, there are banks, there are other private equity firms whose business is to lend to distressed companies, knowing that, you know, in many cases, just because of the way that debt is structured, I feel like it's probably too much to go into. Yeah. Like the junk bonds and everything else, the higher risk is going to have a higher. Yeah, risk. they're they're going to come out fine, and so yeah, there's you know very little risk a lot of the time for companies that provide the financing for for something like a leverage buyout or a dividend recapitalization. Cool, thanks. I appreciate that. Just getting a little more of a, a general perspective. Going back to the healthcare focus of your portfolio, why should we care about private equity healthcare acquisitions? Yeah. There are very real sort of concerns about whether the private equity model is kind of inherently at odds with providing good quality patient care and providing good jobs. So the again, going back to the idea that a private equity firm's singular focus is, you know, double or, or tripling its investment over a pretty short time horizon, that that can incentivize very bad behavior. And so we have spent a lot of time looking at private equity's footprint in, in healthcare overall, and then zeroing in on a number of different industries where there has been like a, a more significant impact. And just looking at many, many examples of how private equity firms have bought up a, a company and then left that company a few years later, you know, with with worse conditions or, you know, in bankruptcy, closing hospitals, things like that. I, I think you can just 
look at, you know, these many, many examples and, and ask, do I want, you know, my healthcare provider to be owned by private equity? One of the most striking examples that we've looked at over the last year is a safety net hospital chain called Prospect Medical Holdings. And safety net hospital is basically a hospital that has to provide care for patients regardless of their insurance status. So a very critical kind of hospital for underserved communities. And so Prospect in 2010 got bought up by a private equity firm called Leonard Green and Partners. And Leonard Green has basically just used Prospect as a platform to siphon out dividends for itself and the minority owners. Over the, the course of Leonard Green's ownership, they've taken out at least $658 million from these safety net hospitals in fees and dividends. And this is while the hospitals were suffering tremendously. They have some of the worst quality ratings from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services that a hospital can have, one and two stars. They shut down all of their facilities in Texas in at the end of 2019, early 2020. So Right before the pandemic, San Antonio lost one of its biggest hospitals, and that building was sold to a luxury hotel developer. They've had multiple lawsuits at some of their Southern California hospitals for basically needlessly admitting homeless patients and elderly patients with dementia so that they could inflate their Medicaid revenues. They've had persistent mold in their pharmacy that is potentially getting their license revoked in California. And these kinds of problems are, are totally magnified in COVID. At, at their hospitals in Rhode Island, they had such poor co- like COVID infection control that 19 of, of 21 patients in their geriatric psychiatric ward got COVID and six of them died. And the head of the housekeeping staff that served that ward also died. So it comes back to your point earlier because... Now Leonard Green is is trying to sell their stake in this hospital company that is, you know, potentially on on the verge of financial collapse. I couldn't say because their recent financial statement isn't available, but would not be surprised given given their track record. And they're trying to sell their majority stake in this company for just $10 million. They took out $658 million in dividends and fees. And so it's troubling that they would value their stake in this hospital at such a, a low price considering everything that they've taken out of it. And so it gets to your, your point earlier is that they've, they basically have stripped all of the value out of these hospitals, meanwhile, leaving them in these you know terrible conditions, but they've made their money back and their investors are happy. When their investors have, have you know, raised this as a concern since we've raised it with them, Leonard Green will go back to them and say, oh, don't worry about it. You made money off of this. And that's sort of the end of the discussion. It's just so frustrating because healthcare, you know, conceptually is about increasing health and and providing quality services. And it just seems again and again, it's lowering the quality of the care. It's reducing the patient safety. It's increasing the cost. And it's also exploiting the labor and trying to have a race to the bottom of, of the labor model as well. And I also saw something that Team Health in 2019 helped fund a $53.8 million dark money campaign to block federal legislation cracking down on surprise medical billing practices in which patients are unexpectedly hit with 
high charges, often following visits to emergency rooms. So then they're also taking their ill-gotten gains to ensure that the legislation doesn't regulate them. Looking at what are some of the policy solutions, Eileen, you recently briefed members of the U.S. House of Representatives Subcommittee Oversight Hearing on Private Equity's Growing Reach in Healthcare. So what did you tell the members? And, and what are some of the solutions that they, they could start looking at? So we talked about what are the kind of primary problematic tactics that private equity uses in its healthcare investments from, you know, what I talked about before, dividend recapitalizations using debt to pay themselves special dividends to fees, which are, you can imagine, private equity firms will charge the companies that they own fees for you know, the privilege of being owned by the private equity firm, essentially, to sort of roll-ups, basically a sort of anti-competitive angle to private equity where firms will buy up a bunch of different small companies in the same market, which can lead to higher prices. So you mentioned Team Health. Envision is another one that does this. They're, you know, monster, big physician staffing companies. So when people go to the ER, a lot of the time their ER doctor is, is employed by one of these companies and not by the hospital. And that's sort of how you get surprise medical billing because those doctors may not be on the same insurance as the hospital. And someone in the emergency room, you know, might not be in the right state of mind to ask their, their ER doctor, oh, are, are you on my insurance? So anyway, so I, I think we, we talked a lot about just like, what are the, the sort of most troubling behaviors by private equity and how can we ensure that these kinds of behaviors don't persist? It's less a question of barring private equity from healthcare investment, because it's great as that would be, it's potentially not as achievable as targeting bad behavior. There's been very good legislation that has been introduced and, and not passed that would that would do this. Senator Elizabeth Warren introduced a couple of years ago something called the Stop Wall Street Looting Act, which would basically increase transparency for private equity investment, not just in healthcare, but in, in every industry. It would increase the liability for private equity firms owning companies. So right now, if um, a company that private a private equity firm goes bankrupt or you know is sued or has you know any kind of regulatory or legal issue, the private equity firm is is not on the hook at all. And so what what this legislation would do would would basically create liability for the private equity firm and, and thus hopefully incentivize private equity firms to, to not take so much risk. And hopefully for the individuals too, so that you can actually put bankers and these PE guys in jail, like Mike Milken and, and these other guys back in the 80s that yeah. um, when they blew up the last junk bond extravaganza in 87 and, and beyond. And then also in, in the medical healthcare, there's so much federal spending with Medicaid and Medicare. There's this false claims act that anytime you defraud the U.S. government, that can potentially create other civil and, and criminal liabilities. And that's an, another policy angle that I'm, I'm curious about going into. And, and just the whole private equity model throws investment on its head, where the idea to invest in, in the traditional sense is that, you know, it's okay to have a four, you know, a two to 4% return over 30 years, and you're actually building equity into the company and you're creating value. And this is at the complete opposite, where it's very short term, 
myopic. Let's consolidate the industry, strip off the most profitable parts and then get out before the whole thing collapses. I think also what like the difference there with private equity is most of the private equity funds are closed in. And that means that the money's just locked in for the life of the fund. And once investors put their money in, they can't get it out, which is also a bit different. And the, the funds themselves are generally like blind, meaning that the investors don't actually know what the fund's going to invest in. So, you know, one of the, one of our tasks is to help educate investors in terms of where their money is actually going, because the private equity firms are, are the general partners in the fund, and they have most of the control, even though they, they only put two to 5% of the money into the fund. Whereas the investors are, who put up the vast majority of the, of the money, our limited partners. So again, you know, one of our responsibilities is to is to educate the investors into in, into like where their money is going. So, and are you trying to do that before the contract is signed by some of these investors, or are you doing it after and then trying to provide more transparency? What's kind yeah, of the process? I think both. It's very hard to anticipate when a private equity firm will be making the rounds to to its investors. I, th- so not try not to get too in the weeds, but basically private equity firms invest, invest in companies through funds. And the fund is basically a pool of capital that they raise from a bunch of different investors. And then they use that fund to buy up, you know, 10 or 20 companies that they then hold on to. And like Virginia said, the investor's money is locked in for the life of that fund. But a lot of private equity firms, especially the big ones, raising funds pretty regularly. So every year, for example, Blackstone will raise, you know, a couple of funds and they'll kind of take, take the fund on the road, basically, and go to all, all the investors they've invested, who've invested with them before and, you know, potentially new ones and say, hey, we're raising this new fund. It's going to be healthcare focused, you know, throw in 50 million bucks hundred million bucks and then like step back and don't worry about it. And so I think just because of the structure of these funds it's you can't really ask investors to divest in the same way that you can ask or demand that investors divest from publicly traded companies because there's just not that kind of flexibility, but instead I think investors still have tremendous power. Pension funds still have tremendous power to be able to basically say, we know that this fund that we're invested in owns a hospital company that you've you know, taken hundreds of millions of dollars out of. We are not comfortable with that. We are a pension fund that represents healthcare workers and we will not invest with you again unless you resolve this issue. So that's you know one way that... that like pension funds and other investors can sort of demonstrate their power. It's, you know, not ideal, but I also think that oftentimes they underestimate the kind of impact they can have, especially big, big pension funds like CalPERS can have tremendous impact. What about things like taxes? I I think a Wall Street sales tax, for instance, would increase transparency and reduce high-frequency trading. What about an increase in capital gains that a lot of the PE firms depend on. If you increase the, that may also create some more transparency and maybe make these short-term turnarounds a little less desirable. And then, yeah, and then the Glass-Steagall idea of, of separating commercial from investment banking so that the investment banking can't be leveraging the commercial retail banking into some of these private equity uh, funds that they, they provide debt for. 
Yeah, totally agree with both of those. I mean, I, the Stop Wall Street Looting Act does attempt to tackle capital gains. But I mean, it's kind of, it's like tough because private equity firms are geniuses at, at you know, tax schemes, basically. And a lot of ways that, that private equity firms are able to avoid capital gains taxes right now is by using fees. So when they charge fees to the portfolio companies, they own, they're not recorded as capital gains. And so, I, I mean, I think the, these are great strategies. I think transparency is absolutely crucial to, to making all of this work because without that, it's very hard to understand the sort of various, you know, tax schemes that are being used. And Gary Gensler has been appointed to the head of the SEC. How, how do you feel about that appointment? Very optimistic. Yeah. I mean, he, he's definitely demonstrated a, a very strong interest in reigning in private equity and requiring better transparency rules. I think the SEC is sort of the critical regulatory agency that, that will be able to you know, accomplish what, what we've been talking about. And so I think it just takes you know, members of Congress putting pressure, unions putting pressure and trying to you know, make sure that the SEC and, and Gensler sort of hold hold to, you know, what he and, and the agency have, have signaled about their, their plans for PE. So what can labor do to also get involved? And, and what are some other calls to action from the private equity stakeholder project to uh, get more folks engaged? We obviously work with unions and, and other labor groups on more sort of targeted campaigns around private equity firms, you know, whether they're employers or they own hospitals where, you know, workers are like our patients. So a good example would be with this safety net hospital chain I talked about earlier, Prospect Medical Holdings. They have hospitals all around the country and many of these hospitals have workers who are represented by different unions. And a number of those unions have been very vocal in their fight against Prospect and the, the private equity firm Leonard Green, they've, you know, spoken at meetings across the country over Zoom of different investors in Leonard Green about what's going on at Prospect. They've held actions. Two different groups in, in two different states have introduced or gotten bills introduced in their state legislatures around private equity ownership of, of healthcare companies. And all of that has been sort of working together with other unions because, they acknowledge that, like Virginia said earlier, these firms are like octopi. They have their arms everywhere. And so, you know, the only way to really stand up to these firms is, is to work in coordination. And public pension funds are, are workers' capital, they're workers' retirement. And public pension funds are typically governed by boards of trustees that include representation by labor, by unions, and they have influence over the way that they invest. And so I think the unions have already done a good job and can do more to educate their trustees on their, their pension boards around, you know, what is private equity? What are the risks to workers and other stakeholders so that they can sort of guardrails basically so that you know someone on those boards is, is standing up for for the folks who are impacted. Virginia, I don't know if you have anything to add. 
Well, I mean, I think it's it's opportunities like this, Evan, to help you know educate your your listeners just to know that maybe some ongoing campaigns that people in you know again all different sectors and and issue areas are already working on it would be great you know if folks just started thinking well is private equity implicated and you know we would certainly be happy to work alongside of you know existing campaigns in terms of determining that and then sharing you know data and research so that it gives kind of the workers and other, you know, community members leverage in terms of just more information about, you know, who's do, how, how these firms are operating. So I think that that's definitely, that's definitely a part of it, like what Eileen just said in terms of some other campaigns and working with groups that, that have been doing this and are doing this already is, is a big part of it. And yeah, definitely educating investors as well that this is what's happening to the money because usually you know there is just a kind of a privacy screen and people don't know so but it's definitely opportunities like this where getting the word out that private equity is so ubiquitous you know and so damaging so that's why yeah we appreciate this space and the more profit that they have the more outsized influence they're going to have on our political system in influencing legislation so I, it also i think is really important to coordinate with congress because it seems that we need to tax and regulate this as much as possible to increase transparency yeah i was just i was just thinking in the last election last presidential election private equity political contributions went basically equally to republicans and democrats in the senate and I think it points to the fact that maintaining the status quo in, in, on the Hill is in the, the best interest of private equity. So there are plenty of, of Democrats in Congress who are sort of as supportive of private equity as, as Republicans. And I think, you know, the, the more money that private equity has, like you said, the, the more influence they'll, they'll have in D.C. And so I think it takes also just like putting pressure on our representatives to say, like, we, we know what this is and we know where, you know, where this money is going and we, you know, will not accept it. I'm going to spend a lot more time looking at the work of private equity stakeholder project and try to figure out what is the gold standard of legislation. If we had, you know, our wish list of all the different laws that we don't have right now and what we need included, and at least trying to educate myself and others about it. And looking in 2021, Virginia, what are some of the campaigns that you're looking at supporting and, and that other type of research projects you're looking at? Yeah, well, we're looking right now at the top employers in the country that that are owned by private equity uh, firms. So I think that that will be an interesting kind of arena to explore in terms of labor campaigns and union organizing. Definitely climate and uh, environmental justice issues, because I mean, here's just a complete switcheroo where you know, a lot of publicly owned firms are getting out of like gas and oil and fossil fuels. And, and then we see private equity buying, buying up these and trying to squeeze out profit, you know, with, with in coal and so on. So coal factories. So I think that that's, you know, that's definitely another area. We had mentioned earlier housing and evictions. 
And also just to lift up in all these areas, you know, especially healthcare, but all these areas, how impacted people of color and low-income communities are, are just, you know, at, at, at such high unequal rates are impacted by private equities behavior. So, so that's kind of, you know, broad brushstrokes in terms of uh, what our team is diving into. And how can people support the private equity stakeholder project? Yeah, I mean, you can definitely come to our uh, website and connect with us. It's pestakeholder.org. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. I'll definitely put that in the show notes. So thank you. Anything else to add as we close out? Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, we'd be happy to return with more information. Cool. And I definitely need to continue educating myself and educate my audience. So I think everyone should check out the pestakeholder.org website to find an incredible amount of critical information on why private equity is a threat to us all from top line takeaways to deep dive reports and short one pagers. So thank you, Virginia and Eileen for all the work that you're doing. Thanks, Evan. Thanks so much.